that they are putting themselves in harm's way for our uh, freedoms, for our sake. They are constantly uh, giving up, laying down their lives. You know, where, where, you know, John Sear, who led us in worship this morning, uh, you know, he's the uh, first Sunday of each month, he's not able to be with us. He's giving that up in order to serve this nation. He's laying down his life, laying down his freedom to serve. It's, it's a tremendous thing. So, so much clearer today. Uh, you know, our culture is all divided and people are angry about, you know, politics and, you know, the United States military and just, just everything. And honestly, you know, the people who have sacrificed themselves to give us the freedom to sit in this room. You need to travel the world or read and see the world around you. This is an incredible gift we have to, to sit here and be able to worship Jesus Christ like this. You know, I've received many special gifts throughout my life, you know, on birthdays and Christmas and, you know, different things that my family and loved ones have given me. And, you, know, you treasure certain things. They might not even have tremendous monetary value, just the sentiment or whatever is involved. No greater gift than those that, that laid down their lives and currently lay down their lives in order to make sure that this freedom is protected. They're continuously protecting us. So I, I just want to say thanks again. We, we really appreciate uh, everyone who has done that in that way. Um, Eric White has... Uh, made the decision a number of things have been going on in his life uh, for some time and he's come to the place uh, with his spiritual struggles that he knows the lord is calling him to uh, enter a residential uh, discipleship program so uh eric is going to be uh, leaving for uh, some months and uh you know uh, just ask that we pray for him this morning so eric will you come up here and want to pray for eric this morning and uh, just ask the Lord uh, to bless him as he goes. I know you'll all join me in prayer for Eric and uh, for his family also while he's away. Lord, you know, we want to uh, support them, be with them, reach out, give them a call, stop by, you know, grab the kids, do something uh, fun uh, with them. You know, just support them as a family and support Eric in prayer as he's made this decision. So let's let's lift our hearts to the Lord. Amen. Father, I thank you uh, that uh, we have uh, the opportunity to pray for Eric. Lord, so many men and women who've struggled with their walk, Lord, don't have the bravery, don't have the courage to stand up and say, I need to get this right. I need to walk with the Lord. I need to have the assurance of my salvation etched upon my heart. And that is what Eric is doing. He's, he's taking the opportunity to invest in your kingdom. Lord, I think of what you said. What would it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Lord, it's such a, the gravity is so serious in people's lives, and, and they don't take it seriously enough often. I thank you that you've spoken to Eric, and I pray that you would surround him with provision with strength, comfort. Lord, be with his family. Help them during this time. Provide for them. Help us to reach out to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, Ross uh, Mawinney injured his back this morning. Okay, so he's all laid up. We uh, We want to pray for Ross also, and for our time in the Word as we begin. So let's, again, turn our hearts to the Lord. Father, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer. And we, again, thank you for Eric and what you're doing there. We pray for Ross. Lift him up and ask that you would heal him. Lord, grateful to see John Karst here this morning, Lord, and the uh, trouble he's had with his own back and the way that you've uh, cared for and delivered uh, those of us that have had illness and are struggling. Be with those Lord, that currently are. 
We ask that you would speak to us from your word, that as we turn our hearts to, to your word right now, that your message would be clear, that we would understand the passage, that we'd understand the word for what it says, but we would also understand how it applies to us, our lives. Minister to us as we take this time. Help us to hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you need a Bible to join us in this morning's study, just raise your hand. Uh, we'll make sure you get one. We have a number back there. You're welcome to keep that Bible as your own. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 25 this morning as we begin. We've seen a number of circumstances take place in the life of Abraham. Uh, most uh, recently, uh, we've uh, seen that his wife, uh, Sarah, has passed away, and then Eliezer, his eldest servant, uh, went and found Rebekah uh, as wife for his son. And uh, now in Genesis chapter 25, it says, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And just to be clear, the, the scriptures uh, very clear about uh, death and remarriage and how it is allowed. There are some that uh, have different opinions about that, oddly enough, but the scripture is very clear that it's acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. In verse 2 it says, And she bore him Zimran and Jokshan, Medan and Midian, Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Ledeshim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanach, Abid, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. So you can, you know, make particular note of all those names and name your next child or grandchild after one of the sons of Keturah. Interesting Middle Eastern names there. It says in verse 5, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. That's very significant in this picture of what we're seeing here. We're going to hear a couple of things about the other sons of Abraham. But the son of inheritance is Isaac. The Lord has made this great promise, beginning in the book of Genesis, that uh, there would come a Savior. He tells Eve in the very beginning that while there is a curse upon her and upon Adam and upon the land and upon creation, uh, that there is a coming Savior who will crush the head of the serpent, and that there will be enmity, hatred between the seed, singular, capital S, referring to Jesus' eventual coming, and her, uh, you know, seed, the, or excuse me, the, the seed of Satan, uh, the, the serpent. So this hatred and animosity, the promise of the coming Messiah. You have the promise that was given to Abraham. And he's looking forward to that coming Messiah through uh, his son Isaac. You'll recall in the beginning the relationship with Hagar and how uh, Sarah had encouraged uh, Abraham to go in to her maiden Sarah and the child that was born Ishmael, she said, uh, would be the promised child. And then later Sarah realizing her wrong and the Lord uh, reiterating the fact that Ish Ishmael was not going to be the promised child. It was going to come through Sarah. So now everything is given over to Isaac. You know, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Abraham gave gifts, verse 6, to the sons of the concubines. That would refer to Hagar and Keturah in the way that it's Written, we have no other references to concubines uh, in Abraham's life anywhere in the scripture. And the way that it's written implies that the scripture is referring to 
Keturah, and Hagar. And within that, you're going to see it's specifically described here what gifts were given to these women. So, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. God and Abraham are currently creating a separation between Isaac and Ishmael and the sons of Keturah. The Lord does not want any conflict between Isaac and his inheritance in the land and in his relationship with the Lord and the other descendants of Abraham. The conflicts are going to come, but currently what the Lord and Abraham are doing is trying to separate uh, Isaac particularly from the outcome of those circumstances. I think there's something very wise uh, within that for each of us to understand how you know we're in the world but not of it. You know, when we read in the New Testament, uh, bad company corrupts good morals. That's very significant to understand. We, we often get the mentality like, you know, I'm going to be around these unsaved people and by my conduct, I will pull them up to a better standard of following the Lord. And, you know, the physical illustration is true. It's much easier to pull someone down than it is to lift someone up. If you're in an elevated position, it's a much bigger struggle to pull someone up to you than it is if they're in a lower position to pull you down. It's not just an old wives saying. Again, it's the scripture. Bad company corrupts good morals. Who you're around dramatically affects your moral condition. I think even the best of us can understand that, how we've been in circumstances and environments and we want to you know, minister to people and maybe we even did to a certain degree, but you come out of that and there's a struggle in your heart uh, for the challenge that was there. So Abraham sends these away. This verse 7, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Uh, he joined those who had died in faith and were waiting for the promise of the Lord. He entered paradise. There's another whole study to be done. I would encourage you to look at the book of Luke on your own and see there Jesus teaching about the rich man and Lazarus and how they died and went into Hades, which you could interpret as being hell, but it literally means the place of the dead. And you have one compartment that is hell and you have another compartment that is paradise. And they can actually see one another from there. And it is referred to as Abraham's bosom. And the rich man who's in hell even calls across to Abraham, begging for water to be brought to him just to touch his tongue, to soothe his anguish. Everyone who died previous to Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven entered paradise immediately. Here, Abraham is gathered to his people, those who were awaiting the Lord's promises fulfilled in their lives. 25 verse 9 says, And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave at Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. We'd read about that previously upon Sarah's passing. He had gone and paid full price, and we talked about how Abraham gave us that example of business dealings, of not taking advantage of people, and being upright in the conduct. And now he's able to be buried there with Sarah in full honor without any animosity between uh, the people of the region and Abraham's family. Verse 11, it says, And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt 
and Beer Lahiroi. Now, this next section is going to describe to us uh, Ishmael and his descendants and how the Lord's blessed him. In verse 12, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, the son that was born to Hagar, descendant of Abraham, but not the son of promise. Abraham's son was from Hagar, the Egyptian. Sarah's maidservant bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Keter, then Edbeel, then Midsham and Misham, Duma, Massa, Hader, Tima, Jeter, Jephish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names. By the towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they dwelt uh, from Havilah as far as Shore, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. So once he had departed, he was there with his people gathered into his land. and He passed away amongst them. It's important to notice that when Hagar had been in such great distress upon leaving, having been sent away, and there the Lord comes to her as Ishmael is dying in the wilderness as they have no food and no water, the Lord assures her, I'm going to give you a great blessing through Ishmael. And there are going to be 12 princes born to him. And we just read of these nations that are here. Again, the scripture's accuracy is remarkable. When we compare it against the writings of even the modern historians who were alive at these times, those historians record the facts grossly inaccurate compared to the scripture. They, they, they give the wrong sons to the wrong fathers. They mispronounce the names. They misspell the names. They assign them to countries and cities that they don't belong to. Sometimes they'll give the lineage and omit names within it. The scripture does not. Everything that the scripture describes about who the fathers were, who their sons were, what their locations were, where their cities were, who their countrymen were, who they did trade with, what cities they were at war with. All of those things are continuously being discovered through archaeology. When archaeologists have relied upon other historians who were alive in those days, they were witnessing those things and not keeping record as accurately as the Scripture. When the Word of God claims to be the very Word of God, God breathed, that's a very high standard. To, to say that it is the perfect Word of God, well, when you claim to be perfect, you've got to toe the line. If there are flaws contained within it, then we can dismiss it. The critics have continuously tried to point out things that they felt were incorrect, only to be shamed when those things were later discovered to be completely accurate. So when we read through these names, and I often joke about you know, these complex Middle Eastern pronunciations, it's important to, to understand that while they don't have a lot of bearing upon us, it's not as though we're going home and dwelling upon, you know, Duma. What a name. I just love that. You know, it's not impactful. These are literal people in history that have been recorded more accurately than anyone else has seen fit to do. God, in his wisdom, <clears throat> made sure of the accuracy. 25.19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was <clears throat> 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his wife. Remember that. She was 40. The daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paden Aram. 
the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now we're going to see that that's 20 years later. They were married when they were 40 or when he was 40. And now you're going to see her give birth at 60. So think about that for just a minute. When was the last time you started praying for something and 20 years passed and you weren't disheartened? It's very easy when we have great needs. You really have to wrap your mind around the shame that is associated with being barren in this culture at this time. If a woman could not bear children, she was thought to be cursed by God. Cursed by God. So something is incredibly evil about that woman. They all understood their normal, average, everyday sinfulness, right? Everyone understood, oh, I told a lie. Oh, I gossiped. Oh, I should have returned that thing that I borrowed from you. Oh, everyone understood the normalcy of sin. When someone was unable to bear children, the mindset of the culture was, this person is evil beyond the rest of us. That's, that's the way they looked at it. She would be shunned. For all of the blessing that is upon this family, the thought that she somehow isn't. Imagine the rumors, the whispers, the gossip that would go on as she's here. She's been brought from a foreign land. Probably it has something to do with the pagan gods of that other land. Probably it has something to do with her family. Maybe her father was incredibly evil. No, no one is wanting to befriend her on Facebook. You know what I'm saying? She is a social outcast. People don't want to be with her. When he is praying for his wife, it's from a position of isolation. Maybe you can under, understand that. That other people look on at you and don't understand what it is you're dealing with. And they have in their mind that what you're dealing with is somehow more sinful than what they deal with. It's very easy to be judgmental. It's very difficult to be judged. Here, he doesn't stop praying for his wife, and she conceives. It says in verse 22, But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If all is well, why am I like this? If, if my pregnancy is going fine, then what is this torment that I'm experiencing? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Interesting wording. Went to inquire of the Lord. You're going to see that she hears very accurately from the Lord. The idea is separating herself from everything that is normal in order to hear from the Lord. We don't know what that means. You know, the went added there. We could have just said she inquired of the Lord. She went to inquire of the Lord. I think that's important for us to incorporate into our lives. Because very often we're trying to hear from the Lord, but we're not doing anything to get to a place where we could hear from the Lord. We're still around the family. We're still around the kids, the cell phone's still ringing. We're still, you know, responding to emails. We're still, you know, answering letters and filling out payments. And sometimes you've got to unplug. Sometimes you've got to just get away, be alone. You know, this is a beautiful place in the country to do that. You know, to just find a spot next to the ocean with your notebook and your Bible and, I don't know, a coffee, a nice tea, sit, pray, listen to what the Lord has to say. I'm going to point out how accurate she hears from the Lord. That takes time. Because if we are just moving through our day saying, Lord, speak to me, Lord, speak to me, very often what ends up happening is we blend 
our desires with the circumstances that are occurring around us and what the voice of the Lord is saying to us all together, and we come up with something that isn't the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is mixed in there, but it doesn't have the level of clarity we're about to read about. She went to inquire of the Lord. Verse 23, look at this. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. That's very significant. She recorded this before they were born and long before they became nations. Okay, If, if you had two children and they grew up and became to princes and leaders amongst the people and eventually nations, and then decades or centuries later, someone wrote, and they became two nations. That would be one thing. There's a level of presumption involved in holding an infant child in your hands from an insignificant family and saying, someday this child is going to become an entire nation. That's a remarkable thing to be able to say. You know, so many things are just taken for granted as you read this. You know, the skeptics or the person who hasn't surrendered their heart to the Lord read right past that and not even take note of. That's prophecy. This woman is saying these two children are going to become nations. Guess what? They're still nations. From this point to today, this is still happening. So, they'll become two nations, or there are two nations in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other. Again, these are significant prophecies. The older shall serve the younger. Very unheard of within the culture. Very unheard of that the younger would become superior to the older. So, when her days were fulfilled, for her to give birth. Indeed, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, which literally means hairy. That's you know one way to get your name. Just what do we call him? Hairy. I mean, what, what else do you call the kid that looks like a blanket? You know. I, I mean, that's the scripture recording. This little dude is hairy. He's, he's just a very obvious thing within you know, his experience. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So literally, as they're delivering one, the hand comes out and grabs his brother by the foot. So his name was called Jacob, which literally means heel catcher. Now, uh, that in the culture was a common phrase, a thing that was said of someone who was a scoundrel. If you were, you know, about to do business with someone new and an old business partner that you've done business with years came to you and said, I'm not sure you want to get involved with that guy in business. And you said, why? And he said, that guy's a heel catcher. You would say, thanks for telling me. And you would have nothing to do with him. Literally, it is such a provocative name that it would cause people to avoid having a relationship with them. What an odd thing to name a child. What do, what do you want to call him? Harry. Okay, good. Excellent. And what do we want to call this one? Scoundrel. You know. I often remark to Amanda and Josh Merriam as their young boys are running around here behaving like hooligans. And they're like, oh, we know we're going to. And I say, well, you are the one who named your children Chase and Ruger. I, it's the name of a gun. I don't know what you were. Pray for those boys. <clears throat> Josh out there looking at me? I said, okay, bro. Okay. <clears throat> for the Lord, man. Chase for the Lord. Weapon for the Lord. That's what we're praying for. 
Named him scoundrel. Named him heel catcher. Culturally, it's, it's significant. Isaac was 60 years old, so there's your 20-year span, when she bore them. So the boys grew. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So an interesting family dynamic there. Um, to begin with, I've heard many of the sermons and read many the commentaries that talk about Jacob or, and this relationship he has with his mother, Rebecca, and the fact that verse 27 says that he is mild. So they do this comparison to the rugged outdoorsman of Esau and the mild behavior of Jacob. And I got to tell you that most of what's described in those sermons and in those commentaries, I don't find to line up with the word of God well. The term mild simply means blameless. It's really quite remarkable. The same term in Job chapter 1, verse 8, you're probably all familiar with it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Same term, exact same meaning. So when we're reading about Jacob and it's telling us that he's mild, it's talking about his spirit. He's, he's a man who's not of severity. He's a man who's not of worldliness. He's a man who's not of the things that Esau is. So just settle in your heart that to, to begin with, there's a certain level of virtue in Jacob that's unique. It's unique. Then you can move into the love that Isaac had for Esau, the father for the son, because of the game. Okay, It, it wasn't even so much the rugged outdoorsman. It was he liked the food. He, he was a man who really enjoyed the meal, liked the savory meat, is what he was about. I want you to notice some parallels between Isaac and Esau and then Rebekah and Jacob. The influence of parents upon their children. Verse 29 says, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red, as in the red stew. Now think about this for a minute, you guys. As the nations progress forward, Israel and Edom, and most of you who have studied the scripture know that there's a great hatred between Edom and Israel. Think about it. If the entire nation has become known as red, which points at the red stew, so if you're familiar with this and the exchange that's about to take place, the animosity even over their name, calling them red, the red nation, the red stew nation, from this point forward is going to continuously put the dig in on these people for this very moment and what transpires here. Feed me, I need the red stew. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Now it's interesting. The birthright is not Esau's to sell. It's not Jacob's to buy. God has already said who gets what. 
God has already said to their mother when she went and prayed for them that the younger will be served by the older. The younger is already destined by God to receive this. So, so realistically, not even theori- theoretically or in some form of imagination, literally, Jacob already has the birthright. Esau, it doesn't belong to him. So Jacob's asking to buy something that already belongs to him. And Esau's offering to sell something that never belonged to him. This is a foolish thing. If you examine your own life, you might notice some parallels along the way. That which belongs to the Lord and doesn't belong to us. 2532, Esau said, look, I'm about to die. Now, this doesn't mean that he was so exhausted from being out in the field hunting that by reason of his being famished, he was about to pass away. This is literally Esau saying, what do I care about the birthright? Someday I'm going to die and then it's not going to mean a blessed thing to me. Death is what comes upon all of us and so therefore I don't care about the birthright. Why doesn't he care about the birthright? Because the birthright has to do with the relationship with God. That's that's what this birthright is about, right? If you're a Rockefeller... The birthright has something to do with standard oil. You know what I'm saying? If if you are a son of Abraham, the birthright pertains to the relationship with God and particularly the coming Messiah. And what Esau is saying is someday I'm going to be dead and I already don't care about that birthright. I don't give a hoot about the things of God at all. What I'm concerned about right now is red stew. I want dinner. So what is the birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Bread and stew, basically uh, it's pea soup. He just sold his relationship with God and all the blessings that come from it for bread and pea soup, you guys. Lentils. This is, this is a very simple approach. It's unfortunate. Then he ate and drank, arose and went away. Then Esau despised his birthright. At this point, he now has a hatred and an animosity for the things of God. Where previously he just didn't care about it. Now that he's come to this moment where he's given it away of his own word, now he has an animosity towards it. He has a hatred and a contempt for it. The birthright was physical in that the eldest son would receive a double portion in the inheritance. It certainly had a monetary value, but it was also spiritual in that the son who received the birthright would become the leader of the family when his father passed away. Everyone would be answering to that son. So there's a significance there. In the case of this family, the birthright determined who would inherit the covenant with God made with Abraham, the covenant of land, a nation, and the Messiah. Land, the nation, and the Messiah. Very significant. You can put your bookmark right there and we're going to go into the new testament to ephesians and we're going to look at our inheritance our birthright ephesians chapter one ephesians chapter one beginning at verse three here it says to us blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as the sons by Jesus Christ to himself, 
according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things to Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The abounding glory, the abounding inheritance that we have in Christ, the great wealth and riches. You know, there are teachers within Christianity that try to make, you know, the abundance and the wealth and the prosperity, you know, material things and money of this world. That gospel that was referred to right here, this thing that has been preached, the gospel of our salvation, health, wealth, and prosperity can't be preached in every culture of the world. We can't go to impoverished nations who are never going to experience money like we do and preach to them that gospel because that gospel is not this gospel. This gospel is spiritual and it is of salvation. We can take that gospel to any nation and we can say to those impoverished men and women, you have been accepted by God and adopted into his family. And all that is available to Christ has been given to us. What a remarkable message that we have. An incredible inheritance that we have. Able to deliver people from the catastrophe of their sin. Now, this room is full of people who were working in rebellion against God and somehow heard that message. Many different ways we each heard that message and we surrendered to Jesus Christ and we were brought into that family. John chapter 3, you must be born again. We became sons and daughters of God. We inherited that great wealth. It's a remarkable thing. You, you think about all of the different examples of adoption and inheritance that we have in the world. You know, wealthy men. I always, you know, I don't know why. I always, everybody remember Dave of the Wendy's restaurant chain, right? Adopted. Adopted. Taught. Nurtured in such a way that he became a very generous man, a very entrepreneurial man in what he did. There are wonderful examples all through culture, society, around the world of people who have been brought into great inheritances through adoption. No greater inheritance than our own. To be brought into this opportunity. You look at the life of Esau and think, what is wrong with this guy? Here he is with the opportunity that, that honestly, in a way, outshines our opportunity. Esau is be, being given the opportunity to be one of the direct lines by which the Messiah would come to us. You think about that. You know, as, as an organization, Calvary Chapel, I uh, 
you know, blessed by Chuck Smith. In the, you know, passed away now in the presence of the Lord. But you know, his vision there in the late 60s to say the hippies need Jesus. And to just reach out to them. And, and it actually, it, it revolutionized Christianity. Literally. The church, would, which had been stuck inside its mold and stuck inside its own self for now centuries, came to a place where it recognized it's time for change and the modernization of the church. Now, I'll give it to you without question. That has resulted in some bad things. But each move of the church has done that too. You look at tremendous works of God that have gone all along the way and there's always those spin-off sensations that occur that end up corrupting the church. So the modernization of the church was necessary and we stand in line to that. Now, my involvement with that. I mean, I'm so dramatically removed from Chuck Smith and those influences, you know, I'm like, I don't know, third, fourth, fifth generation, somewhere down the line, taught by somebody who was 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 taught by Chuck Smith. I don't, you know, it's, it's a long line to get to me. I've had opportunity to sit down and have direct conversations with Don McClure, who was taught directly by Chuck Smith for years, taught directly by Alan Redpath for years. And the richness that is there, you guys, it isn't just sort of the halo effect of, oh, wow, you sat in private Bible studies. You, you sit down and ask questions and the wisdom that flows out of these men. It's remarkable what they've experienced, what they've known. I'll never forget Don McClure in a questions and answers occasion at a pastor's conference just a few years ago. Now, uh, someone was asked a question on the panel regarding parenting, and he answered from a psalm that I don't even remember. And the answer was quick, and I thought, well, that's kind of incomplete. And, uh, you know, it was a good answer, but it was not totally there. And, you know, a few more minutes went by, and Don said, uh, let me just point something out. A moment ago, when this pastor was asked that question about parenting, and he answered from the book of Psalms, that was a good answer, but it's somewhat incomplete. And then he started at the beginning of that psalm, quoting. And the man from memory quoted the entire psalm. The, the whole chapter. 36 verses. And then finished and went back and explained four points that connected to the Old Testament and then explained how that reaches into our parenting today. We're all just sitting there with our jaws in our lap. The wisdom, the depth of experience. Esau is standing on the threshold of the fulfillment of God's promise, and he goes, I'm more interested in what's for dinner. What was Isaac, the son of blessing, interested in? His son's game. Is there a link? I think perhaps. What dad, what dad honors in me is the food I bring in. What dad admires in me is the food I bring in, the meals that I provide for this family, the food. What is Esau concerned with? Parents, consider. Consider The beautiful thing is, if we've had the wrong perceptions and we've encouraged the wrong things in our children, we can say to those children, I've been wrong, let me show you what is right. You know, when we read these passages, there are people that want to dwell on the fact that you get to the New Testament, especially in the Lord says of Esau that he has rejected him. 
And people want to dwell on, how could God reject Esau? And the scripture even says, before he was born, God rejected Esau. How could God do that? I think what's most remarkable is, how in the world could God ever accept Jacob? Have you seen this guy's character? The scoundrel? Oh, he lives up to his name. How could God accept you or I? And yet he does. He does. So often we dwell upon the wrong things, spiritually, physically. We dwell on the wrong things. I think perhaps we're at least seeing that final outcome in Esau's life. So many people ignore or hand over this birthright for cheap amusement, short-lived acceptance, temporary pleasures. They just pass it by. It's tragic. Tragic. Look at Esau's character according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, where the Lord said, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for a morsel of food sold his birthright. A fornicator and a profane man. That's who Esau was. We're going to see that he's grieving the hearts of his parents by going out and fornicating with the women of Canaan. He has no concern for the things of God and the birthright of God. He's not thinking at all about how the Messiah is going to come through his bloodline. He's concerned about his own pleasures. God knew what he was doing when he chose Jacob over Esau to carry the birthright. He knew what he was doing. It's remarkable that he's chosen you and I. That he has looked at us and he has said, that one belongs to me. When you doubt it, when you struggle with it, remember that the man's name was Scoundrel. That probably outshines your character. And God accepted him and made of him a great nation and brought the Messiah into the world. Don't doubt God's promises in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are so grateful for your love, your acceptance. How gracious that you would overlook all that we are. Call us your own. Name us as child. Bless us with inheritance. Father, help us to live in that inheritance, to live in that gospel, to live in that salvation, to experience your fulfillment in our lives. Watch over us. Guide us. Use us as your sons and daughters. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Please stay in fellowship as long as you would like.